welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my compatriot, Daniel Larison, as we take time each week to give you independent, often alternative analysis to the week's headlines and overriding narratives of the Washington establishment blob. We will be talking to Stephen Wertheim, author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, about his recent article, The Crisis in Progressive Foreign Policy. But first, there was an important committee vote on Capitol Hill yesterday, and this is recording on Thursday, so I'm talking about Wednesday this week. It might sound a bit overdramatic, but whether or not the U.S. is on a path to war may depend on this bill actually not going any further. The Taiwan Policy Act, co-sponsored by the Democratic chair of uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator David Menendez of New Jersey, and Republican Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, would give Taiwan access to $4.5 billion in direct military assistance, expand its role in international organizations, and impose new sanctions on China if it were to engage in hostile action towards Taiwan forcing the president to take to place restrictions on a wide range of Chinese industries and financial institutions. Some measures were watered down, apparently, because of concerns that the act was too needlessly provoking the Chinese and undermining longstanding strategic ambiguity with regards to China and its one China policy. But the bill was first touted as, quote, the most comprehensive restructuring of U.S. policy towards Taiwan since 1979, and it comes on the heels of a very high-profile visit to Taiwan by Nancy Pelosi and a parade of similar congressional delegations ever since. So it's it's still, watered down or not, uh, pretty provocative. Dan, can you lay this out for us? Why is this legislation dangerous? And more importantly, why do these hawks feel like we have to pass something like this now? Don't we give Taiwan enough? Well, I well, one of the problems with the bill is that they're they're trying to elevate a lot of these symbolic measures. So, for instance, the designating Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally is one of the things that the bill, I believe, still does, uh, even in its watered-down form. Uh, and this is something that doesn't actually change the substance of what the U.S. does in terms of providing weapons to Taiwan, uh, because Taiwan, through the Taiwan Relations Act, already benefits from similar provisions. Uh, but by designating them a major non-NATO ally, it's it's basically a gratuitous grab in the eye to China as a way of saying that we're we're increasing the the status of Taiwan in the eyes of our government. We're we're elevating them to the level of other major partners uh, and, and including them on that list. And according to at least some China experts, uh, China policy experts, the the Chinese government views are raising everyone to that status as practically the equivalent of granting them a security commitment, which I should make clear, major non-NATO ally status does not actually do. But the the Chinese government's perception of this is that we are moving in that direction. And so it is, it's it's very, it's a a flagrant provocation uh, in that respect. One of the other provisions uh, that is an increase in terms of our support is that if this bill passes, the U.S. will actually start subsidizing Taiwan's weapon purchases, which we currently do not do. So it would be it would be more like the relationship that we have with Israel uh, rather than the one that we have with Taiwan now. 
And so that would be uh, certainly a, a significant increase in terms of our our close ties with Taiwan, uh, and it would be expressing those ties in the form of weapons sales, which would be the, you know, the most you know, gratuitous provocation you can come up with, uh, short of actually offering an explicit commitment uh, to defend Taiwan. So it's it, it's a, a very bad bill, uh, even in its watered-down form. And I, I don't know very many people who follow this stuff closely that think that it's it's either necessary or wise in the form that it has taken. Uh, and of course, one of the absurdities of this debate, you have, even have people on the Foreign Relations Committee who recognize the problems with it, or claim to recognize the problems with it, who say that it's provocative and bellicose, but then vote for it anyway, because they don't want to be seen as being on the wrong side of this issue. And that's why the committee ended up passing it by some huge margin. It was 17 to 5, I think, was the vote. And so you had Mitt Romney out there, uh, in particular, using that language, calling it provocative and bellicose, but then and, and, and sort of wishing that they weren't doing this out in the open the way that they are, but then supporting it regardless, because, well, Romney will, will go with uh, the herd, I guess. It's... It's a very worrying uh, bill, and and I hope that Biden won't sign it, even in its modified form, because we, we've already seen how China has responded to something as you know, relatively minor as Pelosi's visit. This would be a much bigger example of congressional grandstanding that's liable to get Taiwan into a lot more trouble. And so what, what, I, what I'm worried about is that there is this idea in Congress that they have to, to stand up and, and be counted. They have to be seen as doing lots of pro-Taiwan stuff, uh, but it's not actually benefiting Taiwan in the near term or even the medium term. It's it's all being done to sort of satisfy their own desire to be seen as pro-Taiwan. And so it's, it's actually putting Taiwan in much greater danger uh, also that they can clap themselves on the back uh, and, and feel uh, that they're they're doing important things. Yeah, um, and I'm sorry. I think I said David Menendez at the beginning in the intro. I don't know why. I forgive me. The David Menendez is out there. Um, it's Robert Menendez, uh, Senate Chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, can you talk a little bit, Dan? It does sound like the White House had a lot of issues with this. You know, reading the. Um, the uh, what do you call it? The follow up to the hearing yesterday and the markup. There seems to be voices all over the spectrum saying this is not a good idea. So we have not only um, folks on the left and the right, uh, you know, calling out this as a provocation, but you have White House voices who are casting some skepticism about it. So why do Menendez and Graham want this? Is this, and I'm, I'm just going to put it out there, is this sort of like a, a military industrial complex thing? I mean, we're, we're talking about the buildup of major weapon systems, money um, that will go to defense contractors, the, the, the big five, no doubt. And in some cases, and I, I'll, I'll call up the quote here, you know, there's concern that they're not even the weapons that, that Taiwan would actually need to um, confront China, but a lot of big ticket items that 
the uh, that would really boost the bottom line of the of these big five defense contractors. So, what is the motivation here? I think part of it is probably driven by the desire to increase weapon sales to to get more deals done. Uh, but I I would think, especially if you look at the, the two co-sponsors, the lead co-sponsors, mm. Menendez and Graham are sort of this uh, partner. They're, they're sort of partners in crime in pushing the most aggressive positions possible on a range of issues, right? So, the, I mean, they'll be the ones pushing to try to scrap the nuclear deal with Iran as well, because they're also extremely hawkish on Iran. I think a lot of it is driven by this, this idea in their mind that in order to uh, to advance what what they perceive as U.S. security, uh, you have to always be confrontational and aggressive, and and constantly be in the face of the adversary, showing them how strong you are, and and throwing more weapons into the mix at all times. And so they they imagine this, where they they always frame it as deterring the other side, but what they're what they're really doing is is generating a lot of insecurity on the other side as they keep pushing and pushing and pushing for more aggressive measures. Uh, and so I, I think it, it does come down to their, you know, their worldview about how U.S. should use its power. And, and their, in their view, the U.S. should always use it in a maximally aggressive way. And they don't, they don't really think about the fallout of that. They don't fall out from that. They don't think about the consequences of it. Uh, and, and Based on their foreign policy records, they they're never going to start thinking about those things. They they're simply locked into this this idea that we're in the right. Uh, the adversaries are uh, hostile to everything we stand for, and therefore we should just be as militaristic and and strong as possible. And of course, we know that that blows up in our face far more often than not. And and of course, Taiwan is going to be the one that ends up paying the price for this sort of posturing. Um, the the, you know, the U.S. is not necessarily going to be directly involved in a conflict, uh, but Taiwan certainly will be if there is one, and and that's uh, that's who's going to end up paying the price for this sort of uh, irresponsibility. Do you do you know whatever happened um, to that legislation that was proposed uh, by? I believe it was Elaine Luria. Uh, she's a Democrat in oh, right. Virginia, and I'm looking it up right now. I believe it was um, okay. The Taiwan Invasion Prevention Act. She yeah. proposed this back in in February, and she wanted to give the president authority to act against an invasion of Taiwan and prevent a fate accompli. Um, this obviously was giving. It would give Biden or any other president, I guess, a green light for preventative war against China. I'm, I'm thinking that if the White House and, and Democrats are wobbly on this particular Menendez-Graham uh, bill, that that probably went nowhere. But it does give you a, a sign of where some of our hawkish Democrats and Republicans are on this issue. Right. Uh, well, and it's... The, the idea of giving sort of a pre-approved authorization for war, especially a war on that scale with an adversary like China, uh, is, is yeah, deeply irresponsible. It's the kind of it's, it's exactly the kind of uh, misguided activism in Congress that we we don't need. We we need Congress to be 
clawing back powers from the president rather than looking to give him new ones uh, for getting us into wars. Um, and, and you know, so it is very concerning that, that these are things are even being proposed, even if they don't go anywhere, because it shows that the, the mood in Congress is, is very reckless and, and there's not a lot of thought being given to what it would actually mean for us to get into a shooting war with the People's Republic of China, which, as we know, could very well escalate up to the, the nuclear level, in which case uh, it would be devastating uh, beyond anything we've ever experienced. Uh, so, and, and even if it doesn't go to that level, it would still be an enormously costly conventional war, uh, probably worse than anything we've seen since Vietnam. So uh, this is not something to be uh, played around with or, or treated trivially, but I'm, I'm afraid that members of Congress have failed in their duties for so long on matters of war and peace that they they treat it like a game, and and unfortunately, uh, that that's the the quality of political leadership that we've got right now. I feel like there was a little bit of, of bad and and good news to come out of this markup yesterday. Uh, the bad news, and this is something that I'd like to share, is that we tried to get our reporter Connor Eccles into that hearing, into that markup, because we've been covering this issue at Responsible Statecraft and wanted to be there for it. You know, wow, that's that's novel. Apparently, since COVID and January 6th, you know, regular citizens and uh, reporters that are uncredentialed can't just walk into the Capitol anymore and go into a hearing. And I'm not even sure they can do that at the Senate buildings either. But this particular hearing was in the U.S. Capitol. And when our reporter called, they said, oh, well, we have some seats available uh, for press, but they're already taken up by major news organizations. So I called one of the senator's offices, a contact that I had there, and they and they said, well, we can't help you. So then I contacted the committee and they came back and said the same thing, that there wasn't any room for us. But if you had, you're a credentialed reporter, which we're hoping to get Connor cred credentialed at some point, but if you're a credentialed, you can, you can share that we'll have a pool reporter in there. And I just find I find that outrageous that um, and it's not just press that regular uh, citizens can't go into the Capitol anymore and go and listen to a floor debate or listen to a hearing. And they're using COVID as an excuse. They're using January 6th as an excuse. And I find that an abomination because I was a reporter all the way through the times of 9-11. And I know how much security was put in place after 9-11 for good reason. And we were still able to get into the buildings, you know, and, and sit in on a hearing. The good news is that it doesn't sound like this bill is going to survive. It might survive somewhat in parts, and I, I'm sure it's the money part. I'm not so sure about the major non-NATO ally or some of these sanctions or whatever, but it did seem like there was kind of a wet blanket put on this, and they're just shoving it through a committee with the White House being sort of against it. I just don't know where this goes. So that that's somewhat good news that this isn't a fate accompli. Uh, for the, the Taiwan Protection or Policy Act. I 
Our guest today is Stephen Wertheim. He's a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a distinguished lecturer in history at Catholic University, and a visiting lecturer in law at Yale Law School. He was one of the co-founders of the Quincy Institute. He's also author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Welcome to the show. Glad to be back. It's good to have you back. And uh, you wrote an interesting article recently for Foreign Affairs uh, talking about uh, what you call the crisis or what, what the, the headline calls the crisis in progressive foreign policy, in which you discuss the current debates among progressives uh, about uh, where the, the U.S. should go in the world and what it should be doing. Uh, and so, so what is that crisis uh, and what are the main issues that divide progressives? Well, I didn't write the headline uh, where right. you were crisis, as you alluded to. But, yeah, you know, I think it's uh, maybe a kind of a quieter crisis or I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. There are real choices that progressives have to make. Uh, and I think that um, uh, right now, progressive foreign policy is on the back foot after it had uh, looked uh, to be on the ascent uh, after about you know the first year or so of the Biden administration with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, action on uh, climate change through domestic legislation and international action as well. I think now it's a little unclear where progressive foreign policy is going and what makes it distinctive. And so in the piece, I lay out basically kind of three uh, camps of progressive foreign policy as they have existed in the post-Cold War era. Uh, and my essential argument is that these are all uh, important viewpoints. They're going to be enduring viewpoints. So I'm not seeking the dominance of one of these camps over the other, but it's going to take a lot of work to uh, to try to reconcile them, especially in uh, our emerging global uh, environment of intense great power competition that, of course, could lead to great power conflict. So the first camp uh, is progressive internationalism, which has a lot of overlap with mainstream liberal internationalism uh, in that it, it seeks to uh, combat atrocity and authoritarianism. For progressives, though, there's a, there's a twist. There's more attention to the ways in which American power uh, can uh, uh, abet authoritarianism and commit atrocity and not just be the solution to it as mainstream liberal internationalists would have. Uh, there's a second camp, which uh, I call the global cooperators. They seek as wide as possible cooperation among states to tackle transnational and planetary challenges like climate change, perhaps economic inequality uh, and pandemics have to be on that list. And there's a third camp, uh, those who take political military restraint by the United States as their lodestar. So these are all reconcilable, but I think we've seen some signs that um, with a not terribly progressive president in power, as well as the uh, war in Ukraine in the bro broader backdrop of great power competition, that there could be a temptation to uh, to engage in great power competition for the long term, given the authoritarian nature of Russia and China and some of the atrocities or human rights abuses that they've committed. Uh, and that could threaten to split the movement uh, between this kind of more hawkish strain, which could essentially merge with mainstream liberal internationalism and primacy, uh, 
uh, and restrainers who have a have a different view, obviously, on that score. And then you have the whole question of where where all of this leads cooperation on transnational challenges. And, and you also pointed out that there's another pitfall for progressives when you say that they could lose what makes them distinctive, their willingness to hold their own government to the standards it preaches uh, in the context of great power competition where the U.S., uh, in order to pursue a rivalry with China, might feel compelled to partner with uh, various authoritarian and abusive regimes. And progressives would then be uh, under pressure to either oppose that or, or to go along with it. How do progressives avoid that pitfall? Well, to my mind, the best way to avoid it is to be uh, skeptical of the mainstream account that says that American security interests are going to be advanced by locking into an open-ended, uh, rather hazily defined uh, struggle with China as well as Russia. Um, otherwise... I think progressives will find themselves fighting a kind of rearguard action, much as occurred during the Cold War, where they say, yes, but, you know, yes, we have to uh, uphold all of our security commitments and make sure uh, Sino-Russian power doesn't ever advance anywhere. But we really wish we were at the same time not partnering with odious regimes like Saudi Arabia. Um Frankly, you would have thought that that appeal, if it was going to work, would have worked in the last three decades when the United States didn't have intense great power rivalries, though there was always competition, which is important to note. Um, uh, but it didn't work then. Uh, and so it seems to me only less likely to work now unless progressives have a serious account of what exactly is at stake in these relationships with Beijing and Moscow uh, for the sake of U.S. security. Thanks for coming on, Stephen. Um, I, 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 you know, saw it and I'm, and I'm glad that you brought it up in your piece, the idea of U.S. national interests in restraint and that third group in particular and you had you had mentioned, and I'm going to quote it, you know, directly here, just so I get it straight. Um, you say to succeed, progressives who prefer to speak the language of values should not shy away from talking about the national interest. To some on the left, that phrase can sound like narrow nationalism. In fact, it expresses the public good in an international context as competition with China and Russia unfolds and exposes Americans to larger risks and costs. It will be essential to show why overreach would harm the people for whom U.S. foreign policy is supposed to serve and why a principled and restrained approach would make them safer. I completely agree, but I also agree with the idea that some on the left are get a little squeamish over the talk about U.S. national interests. You know, as somebody who is trying to bridge uh, both left and right in my job every day, I sometimes find when I'm talking about restraint with folks on the left of center, um, I, I do interject the national interests, and I almost feel a little abashed about it because I'm not sure how they're going to take it. Um, can you talk a little bit about how to integrate the idea of U.S. national interests as a, a key definer of whether or not the United States gets involved um, in 
you know, um, international um, conflicts and interventions, entanglements, what have you. You know, at the end of the day, I don't think that there are many progressives and people on the left who truly don't think that major U.S. foreign policy initiatives like commitments uh, to defend another country or the use of force should be made without reference to U.S. national interests. Uh, if you look at progressives in, in the Senate and the House, you don't actually hear them saying things like that. Um, so it could be that there are some real deep differences on the left where some people perhaps want to transcend the nation state ultimately. And that's why they're uncomfortable appealing to national interests and giving it a sense of permanency. But I actually don't think that that's mainly what's going on in this hesitance that you point to Kelly to appeal to national interests. I think that for so long, what, uh, progressives have heard is people they don't agree with uh, constantly holding up the national interest to serve uh, hawkish ends. Um, and sometimes that leads to a kind of, um, uh, I think, un unjustifiably passive acceptance that, okay, yes, the U U.S. has security interests. And so I'm going to use the language of values to try to make my point and not get into this argument over interests, which I won't win against, uh, you know, the, the DC establishment. But as I, as we talked about before, I don't think that that works. And so I think if, um, if progressives, most progressives are honest with themselves, yeah, they do care a lot about the people of the United States. Um, and they have deep, uh, doubts as to whether the United States government is an agent that can truly serve the interests of humanity in some kind of impartial way. And I think if you accept that, then you realize that national interests do need to be uh, at the center of U.S. foreign policy and that, you know, nationalism and internationalism uh, can combine. And I think a, a, a combination of those two things uh, is what will make for a really effective uh, foreign policy vision and an argument that can actually uh, not just maybe, you know, get into power in, in one administration, but can be uh, an enduring framework for U.S. foreign policy. But isn't the the vision of autocracies versus democracies much more powerful, at least in uh, today's context? Uh, the, the president has talked about it. He has even extrapolated that, you know, this is it, this is happening in tandem with the fight for democracy here at home. Um, it's very compelling to progressives. They feel that it is an, a U.S. national interest to promote democracy across the globe. How do restrainers in your third grouping mm. contend with that very, you know, powerful message? Well, I think you're right that in light of the war in Ukraine, um, the democracy autocracy framing uh, has gotten more traction in general in the United States, including on the left side of things. But I still see that as a basically kind of mainstream as opposed to progressive view. Most progressives active in foreign policy debates 
have long been skeptical of that kind of framing because they understand that it uh, has a lot of resonance with uh, George W. Bush and the neocon agenda. Uh, and so, you know, I don't think personally that, you know, I, I do care about the fate of democracy in the world. I don't think the United States needs to um, renounce support for democracy. But when we think about what will actually be conducive to a healthy democracy here in the United States, as well as internationally, um, I don't think it's dividing the world up uh, in this simplistic way and then engaging in geopolitical rivalries uh, in, in the name of a struggle between democracy and autocracy. And I don't think that's fundamentally what explains what, what the Biden administration or the United States is, is doing. Um, it has to do more with the pursuit of American primacy, which is now under challenge uh, from uh, great power competitors and, and particularly China, and we can't find a way to to, to ever uh, reduce our security commitments and uh, military presence, or we have a very hard time doing so. Uh, so I think that's the real issue. And I think, you know, progressives are, um, I understand how, you know, you could see the democracy autocracy framing uh, as a progressive kind of idea. And I think that's right if you think about what the progressive movement historically has been. Um, so I think it's important for today's progressives to understand that progressivism in history, right, and intellectually is open to being imperialistic. And it was imperialistic, literally, in the progressive era, right, when the United States uh, uh, colonized the Philippines. It did so with progressive ideas. But that doesn't mean that today's progressive movement uh, is about that or needs to be about that. Uh, and I think it would be a mistake, you know, for those on the right to sort of see this Biden administration rhetoric, which I, to my mind, progressives have largely been critical of uh, and and write off uh, the the left on the whole. But nonetheless, a lot of the progressives who have supported um, a more aggressive policy in Ukraine have used the authoritarian frame as a justification my my i guess my third and final question will be what happens if china invades taiwan or engages in some hostile action towards taiwan what will the progressives in your first grouping those who really believe in a movement um to promote democracy challenge authoritarianism um, I, I would imagine they would have the same response as they have in Ukraine, or maybe not. Um, do you have any sense of where the progressives would be on the China question? I think that uh, there will be a debate on the left, just as there would be a debate on the right uh, in the event of a uh, main, mainland Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Uh, and... I do think, though, that there are not a whole lot of progressives that I know of who want to fight uh, World War III, which a conflict with China over Taiwan would be. Uh, so I, I think there needs to be a whole lot more thinking about what an actual war with China over Taiwan would look like. And we need to do this as a country, not just on the left, but as a country before we get to the moment of crisis that I'm very concerned about the um, 
the drift away from the status quo uh, around the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and so, you know, uh, th that's precisely why I wrote this wrote this piece. Um, but again, I, I wouldn't say progressives aren't going to be single minded. Conservatives aren't going to be single minded. Right. Um, so I think we need to really think clearly about, um, you know, what kinds of actions the United States uh, should take or avoid taking over Taiwan uh, so that we do not get into this moment of crisis. Because my view is that uh, China will fight for Taiwan if Taiwan declares independence or something like that. We should not imagine that, um, you know, China is the kind of adversary that the United States has faced for the last three decades. It's completely different. And just as uh, as a country, we're losing the greatest generation. We're losing touch with the reality of what great power war meant. Uh, we've created this kind of myth of World War II as the greatest thing the United States has ever done. And in some ways it, it was, but um, a war with China would be very different in some senses, but it would be incredibly bloody and disruptive as great power war was. And so, um, you know, I think as a country, including on the left, but more importantly, as a country, uh, we need to have much fuller consideration of uh, the Taiwan issue and what a major power conflict would look like for the United States and the world. Well, I, I certainly agree with that. And what we're seeing just this week, unfortunately, that Congress is not taking that responsibility as seriously as they should. Uh, the, the Foreign Relations Committee just voted out the, the Taiwan Policy Act, uh, which uh, would, uh, in, in the words of some of its own supporters, uh, be highly provocative and bellicose uh, as a signal to China. And so these are, uh, it, it, there are uh, strong uh, currents in Congress pushing for a more confrontational approach over Taiwan as we speak. Um, are, do, you, uh, do you see uh, progressives in Congress and, and in the country uh, as a whole, one of the, the main uh, bulwarks against that uh, drift towards conflict. I think Bernie Sanders, for example, has been quite vocal and and prior to the more intense dynamics of the past several months, um, he's been quite uh, clear about the hazards of a cold war with China. Um, but uh, you, you know, I think across the board, um, members of Congress are, um, too reflexively supportive of actions that could get us into real trouble with China and may not recognize uh, where we're headed. Um, and, you know, you've seen that the, the Pelosi visit to Taiwan was opposed by most people who are a lot more uh, hawkish than I am on China in the expert community. So we're seeing a real divide just between the expert community, almost regardless of where one stands on the issue, um, and our political dynamics as represented by Congress. And that's quite troubling. And frankly, I think the kind of progressives who have um, opposed U.S. endless wars in the greater Middle East since 9-11 and recognize the bipartisan nature of the problem. They are, uh, you know, one 
uh, source of the resistance to a lurch into a Cold War or even a hot war with China. Um, I do think, though, that there's just needs to be a little bit more forethought in order to get us there, because there have been good reasons to want to be more critical than many have been of China uh, in the era where the so-called engagement policy uh, held sway in in Washington. And it's completely correct to object to many actions that China undertakes at home and abroad. But now I think people need to think about where are we heading in this relationship uh, because the engagement policy is no longer the status quo. We have much more of a containment policy, and the dynamics are shifting quite rapidly, uh, frankly, a little bit more rapidly than I expected. Uh, and I think the reaction to Nancy Pelosi's visit was quite disappointing. Uh, so I think, you know, this is a moment for uh, leadership uh, among thought leaders and at the grassroots uh, to look ahead and make people understand it's not about whether you like China or approve of China. I don't think many people have sympathy with China as an actor in the world, on the left, on the right, in the center. Fine. But, you know, after 9-11, remember how we all thought that uh, we all got the flags out and uh, thought that uh, we had to wage this global war on terrorism and only when it became too late and we had gotten ourselves into a mess do we start to think, well, where are we going here? And who's benefiting and who's losing out from these wars? Uh, well, we're not going to have uh, um, so much slack uh, if China invades Taiwan and we get into a war with China. Um, then we're locked into something whose end no one can foresee, except to say that it's almost surely bound to be worse than what we experienced even in Afghanistan and Iraq. On that, we'll have to close it out. Uh, we're out of time, I'm afraid, but uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Stephen Wertheim. Uh, we appreciate it. Always great to speak with you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.